You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and corporate media. This is your host, Isha. Today, we have a very special guest, Maui Mitchell, to speak to us about the dynamics of slavery and Raising Freedom's Child is your book, right? Yes. So can you tell us a little bit, you work at the University of New Orleans. Like, Where did you get your PhD and what did you study? Sure. Yeah. So I got my PhD in history from NYU and I studied 19th century U.S. history, specifically slavery and emancipation with Walter Johnson. And I was searching for a dissertation topic, as we all have to do, (laughs) Uh, but was particularly interested in the lives of African-American children at that sort of moment in time when things are transitioning from slavery to emancipation. And so I started digging into that for my dissertation, which then became my book. One thing that fascinated me about your book was the section on Rose Bloom, pure and white, so it seemed. Um, Uh And so I'm looking at these photos of various children, Rebecca, Charlie, and Rosa, Mm -hmm. and they're saying slave children in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Can you... and, And for the audience, I will put these PDFs up on our Patreon Great. Look at too. Um, can you talk about what these photos are and how they came to be? Sure. Yeah. Well, they're really fascinating images, aren't they? I mean, people are always <laughs> curious about them. Still, I started working on this project longer ago than I'd like to remember. <laughs> um, when I was first, you know, in graduate school, and I discovered them, no one had really written much about them except for there was one photographic historian who had actually happened to have as an instructor at NYU when I was there. And she had done some of the kind of work that photographic historians need to do to sort of determine authenticity, look at the verso, you know, try to figure out the photographer's name, that sort of thing. But she'd also sort of written a little bit about the images, but that was more or less all there was about these photographs. And because I was interested in asking this question about where African-American children and children generally, but specifically African-American children factored into the upheaval that happens with the Civil War. These images were sort of perfect for thinking about that because essentially they are created by abolitionists. They are propaganda. We know both of those things to be true. They were created in practical terms as fundraisers. In the 1860s, suddenly we had the ability to reproduce photographs cheaply. And so you would produce these things called carte de visites. And that's the format that you see most of these photographs in, is a carte de visite. They're little cards, they can be very tiny. Some are larger, but they can be quite small. And you could reproduce a photograph all of a sudden and sell it as a fundraiser. So very famous people use this as a means of sort of constructing an identity for themselves, but also raising money. So listeners might be familiar with Sojourner Truth's photographs. She was very savvy about having her photo taken, and then she would sell photographs of herself at speaking engagements and things like that. Frederick Douglass had his picture taken many times, too, because photography is just becoming more of a medium through which people can communicate. So these photographs of the children were created to raise money for the newly established freed schools for formerly enslaved children in Louisiana during the Civil War. And in New Orleans, the city gets occupied very early on in 1862 by the Union Army. 
And so they're able to start sort of implementing a sort of social reform early in New Orleans, earlier than in other places where the war is still going on. And so one of the things they start to do is to establish official schools. There were already sort of smaller schools in place, freed people themselves had started to gather children together and adults to teach them to read and write once it was safe to do so. But this was a way of raising money for these sort of newly established schools that the occupation had fostered in Louisiana. What hit me is a lot of these children looked white Mm -hmm. and it seemed to garner more sympathy. And today it hit me in the present day case. Are you familiar with Ahed Tamami in Palestine? Uh, No. Okay. So she's this very gorgeous, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who lives in Gaza, I believe, or West Bank, I believe, and she uh-huh. slapped this Israeli soldier. And then there was a big outrage that they arrested her. Like he had just shot her cousin, and then she mm-hmm. she slapped him. And there was a big outrage that I had never seen accompanied. But it was because she had blonde hair. And not, I'm not saying it's because I, I can't ignore that. You know yes. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that I mean that is ex- that that was the point of having these photographs made. Not all of them. I mean. The reason I'm giving you so much context here is that it was a group of people taken from New Orleans on tour who were featured in these photographs. There were adults who were dark-skinned in this group. There were two children, one who was a little bit darker skinned than the whitest children and another one who was very dark-skinned. And then there were three very light-skinned children. And those are the photographs that people are most interested in. They seem to have been the photographs that sold the most in the 19th century because we have so many copies of them in archives. And yes, they were designed to get the viewer's attention and to garner their sympathy for newly freed people, right? For freed children. But they're playing on this sort of racist idea, right? That, oh, this is really terrible now because white children, people who look white, were enslaved. Now we realize how bad the system was, right? And also, this is the reason why we might need to give our money to the cause of abolition and education, right? So abolitionists were very savvy about playing on these sympathies that they knew so many people, white people in the 19th century had. I'll mention they had a sort of an earlier experiment with this using a daguerreotype which was, at the time it was produced in the 1850s, you couldn't reproduce photographs very easily. So it was really sort of a one-off of a little girl from Virginia who was also, you know, appeared to be white. And they thought, this will really get the abolitionist movement going. This will get supporters because people will see her face and understand how terrible slavery is. So implicit in that is this notion that, well, it's really not so bad if it's people of, Af- you know, clearly of African descent, but once you start talking about people that look white, then, then it's bad, <laughs> right? And so that's the same sentiment that these carte de visites that you're looking at employed. They're trying to get empathy, not just sympathy, but empathy from um, 19th century white people who might not otherwise have had the same level of concern for the freed population and the enslaved population. That is very interesting. And I'll put up these photos for everyone to see on our Patreon so that you know what we're talking about. So a few weeks ago, Adam Rothman, who referred me to you, uh, talked a little bit about the reconstruction right, right after 1862 in New Orleans. And what were the first steps that the Union Army took to, I guess, reconstruct? Well, 
you know, they had a, a big job. I guess that's one thing to realize. And Adam probably talked about this too, because New Orleans was one of the largest cities in the South. And it had a very diverse population of people living there. And so it had a very large wave of immigration happening in the 19th century before the Civil War, not unlike New York, Philadelphia. So it was an immigrant port, as well as the site of the largest slave market in the Deep South. So New Orleans <laughs> was not an easy thing to reform, if that's your goal, or at least to sort of bring order to. And so that was a, a real challenge for the occupiers, the Union Army. Also, they have the problem of parts of the Emancipation Proclamation not applying to occupied areas. Early on, you have a lot of enslavers trying to get their runaway slaves to come back, and they're sort of trying to negotiate with the Union officials to try to get the return of their enslaved people. So it's really kind of a mess <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, if you thought you could come in and sort of really reform a society that was not going to be an easy job in a big, diverse kind of city like New Orleans. But schooling and the schools were one of the early things that got established with the help of missionary societies, with the help of the Union Army, and, the, and ultimately the Freedmen's Bureau. That was one of the sort of anchors of what they tried to do at that moment of emancipation was to, to create spaces for formerly enslaved people to be educated. And that is not just white Northerners coming down and feeling like that's something needs to be done. That's coming from the enslaved and formerly enslaved populations. They are demanding education. They are already setting up schools of their own when these sort of freedmen's schools, in quotes, start to happen. There are already people educating children and adults in greater and greater numbers. So it was a huge demand of the population itself to be educated. And so the sort of appeal of these photographs were a, sort of a major campaign to support that. And they were, you know, these freedmen schools in Louisiana were some of the earliest. So it's almost as if you're saying sort of, here's our chance, right, to see what we can do to change things in the South. And here's a model for what we're trying to do. Around this time, was there any public schooling anywhere in America, or was that just a privilege for the rich? That's a good question. Yes, there was. There was public schooling, in, um, particularly in large cities like Boston. And cities like Boston went through a whole sort of struggle with segregation and integration before the Civil War. But actually, New Orleans also had public schools in the 1850s, but they were only open to white children. So there was a public school system, which was relatively rare in the South, in New Orleans, but it was only for white children. And so particularly free children of color in New Orleans, of which there were a relatively large number, their communities had to find other ways to educate those children. And, and they did. Um, they established their own schools. One school in particular in New Orleans was, it was officially a Catholic school, but kind of unofficially, it was sort of the public school for free children of color to attend. Enslaved children were, of course, were not, it was not legal to teach them to read and write. So there were public systems, but certainly in the South, they were not as extensive or developed as they were in, in larger Northern cities. Before we head to schooling, I guess one of the more fundamental issues with slavery is that they didn't always keep mom and children together. Like, was there a large effort to find their children? Mm, you mean after the Civil War? Yeah. 
Yes, there was. There's a historian named Heather Williams who's written a whole book about formerly enslaved people trying to find their relatives after emancipation. And they put ads in newspapers trying to say, I last saw my daughter, you know, in such and such a place at such and such a time, or her owner was so-and-so. And they're very, very moving documents published in regular newspapers of people reunite with their their families. One of the interesting things about these photographs of the sort of quote-unquote white slave children is that they appear in the photographs, they appear alone, right? Not with family members. But there are, in the write-ups, particularly there's a extended article in Harper's Weekly about these children. They do give you a little thumbnail sketch of the children's family history, whether they were owned by their father in some cases, in other cases, they lived with their mother or their grandmother. And so you get a little bit of information about the families of those children, and they all seem to be still with their families. But the larger reality was that families were separated on a regular basis under slavery. And particularly what you see in New Orleans is starting about 1820, you have this large forced migration of enslaved people from the Upper South, Virginia, Maryland, to the Lower South. And that's because there's a cotton boom. People don't need as many enslaved laborers up in the Upper South. The money to be made is to be made in cotton. And that's how New Orleans becomes this sort of engine for the slave trade in leading up to the Civil War. But that forced migration of all those people, and I'm sure Adam probably talked about the Georgetown story with you. Yep. He did. The people in Georgetown that were sold by the Jesuits, most of them ended up in Louisiana. And so their descendants, many of their descendants, if not, you know, that we know that we've interacted with are here in Louisiana. So they were, their whole community was displaced. But if you read another thing that I work on are fugitive slave advertisements. And I'm working with a group on a project called Freedom on the Move, which is crowdsourced digital database of fugitive slave advertisements that were placed in newspapers before the Civil War. Owners would place them in the newspapers if someone had run away, and jailers would place them in the newspapers if they found an alleged fugitive and was trying to reunite that person with an owner. And so there are hundreds of thousands of these ads from newspapers, and we're trying to gather them all together so that we've never really had them as a compendium to be able to see patterns and to their individual stories of a struggle, because you have a lot of detail about some, what someone's appearance, the languages they could speak, the skills they had, records of sale, like had they been recently sold. And that's where you see this family separation popping up over and over again, is that someone, the, the owner will say, I recently bought someone from Kentucky right? Or they recently arrived in New Orleans from Tennessee. And you have the sense that that person has, you know, you know, that person has been separated from friends and family. And that pattern of separation from the upper South to the lower South is very, very common. And really, you know, just terrible things for families to have to, to be separated. And then the work that Heather Williams has done is to sort of collect those ads posted after the Civil War, where people are trying to find their families. That is actually pretty fascinating. So can we talk about the early schools? And I guess they were sold as civilizing missions, right? So what did that mean? 
I guess the place to start is to understand that there were sort of two kinds of schools that would, at least two kinds of schools that would pop up in the aftermath of the Civil War and during and after the Civil War in these sort of early schools for African-American children and adults. You have communities themselves creating their own sort of schools because especially if you're in a rural area and the plantation owners or the people that former owners are discouraging of the establishment of schools, then, you know, you have to do what you can to educate your youth. Whoever had any ability to read and write would teach the others, right? And so there's a lot of organizing that happens among formerly enslaved people. Then there are schools, most of them sponsored by missionary associations often, or in collaboration with the Freedmen's Bureau in the South. So they would pay teachers to go to the South and teach in schoolhouses in places where they they could, right? Sometimes if you read the records of the Freedmen's Bureau, you see um, a lot of resistance on the part of planters to having their now freed workforce educated. They don't want that. Many of them do not want that, right? They want to keep the people working for very little money and want to keep them uneducated. And so a lot of the fight on the ground after the Civil War in rural areas, but also in cities like New Orleans, you still see resistance to the education of formerly enslaved people. The teachers weren't paid very much. It was a really hard job. Historians used to have this idea that most of these teachers were sort of white northern women who came down as quote-unquote civilizers, right, to civilize quotes, the freed population, right, that they were uneducated and therefore needed to have civilization brought to them. And we don't interpret it that way anymore. We've dug more deeply into the archives and into the evidence, and we see something more complicated going on there, particularly, as I mentioned, with free people trying to educate themselves and to create their own schools. But there were certainly, and probably a lot of that stereotype we get of the white northern female school teacher comes from the fact that some of them published their memoirs or their diaries or would write back to the missionary associations and those letters would get published. And they do have this sense that they are, I mean, they are missionaries. And so that's what missionaries in the 19th century thought that they needed to do was to civilize sort of quote unquote heathen populations or uncivilized populations. So there is that strain of educator (laughs) in the archives, but there's lots of other education going on as well that for a long time got um, less attention. Uh, But it was quite a struggle. It was not easy to get these schools. And when you get down to like the day-to-day practice, many of the children, particularly in rural areas who were trying to attend school, could only attend a month or two months at a time. They had to work. These schools were not schools where children would go in the morning and leave at three o'clock in the afternoon and go to school for nine months out of the year. That just wasn't the reality for most children living in rural areas, black or white at the time. So it was a more sort of rudimentary effort to teach people to read and write. Um, One thing that often surprised me about slavery is that people assume that slaves are uneducated, but then I saw this contract where George Washington is renting out his slaves to do like artisan work, like carpentry or other highly skilled labor. So it seems like they were not completely uneducated either, but... (laughs) Right. No, that's right. And that's a terrific question because, of course, that's, that's true. First of all, you had to have skilled labor, 
right, to make the, the system in the South work. You couldn't not have skilled labor. If so much of your labor force is enslaved, then those enslaved people have to have skills like carpentry, blacksmithing, masonry, construction, all of those things, right? So you needed those kind of skilled laborers. And, you know, that does translate into, if you look at from the perspective of uh, prospective buyers in the slave market, people with skills, you know, you would go into the slave market looking, I need a blacksmith, right, for my plantation. You would go and looking for that person. That person would cost a premium because of the skills that they had. But there is a diversity of skills, and it's not just uh, men that have those skills, right? Women would come with experience in household work, things like that. So there, there are those skills, too, that were in demand. So they hadn't had the opportunity of sort of a quote-unquote traditional schooling, reading and writing and arithmetic kind of schooling. Many of them to do the work that they needed to do, of course, ultimately do acquire those skills. If you look at urban enslaved populations in particular, just to get around the city and do your day-to-day business, you know, it would be very hard not to have acquired some skill in at least reading. So the population that we often think of as being that sort of first generation of people getting education are often the very sort of isolated rural populations getting an education. And then we don't so much think about the children in urban areas, but they too were the beneficiaries of Freedmen's schools, just like the children in these photographs. Um, how long did they last? Like, were, were they successful? Like, or were they dismantled mm-hmm. after reconstruction was abandoned? Yeah, they're not, com- the school systems themselves were not completely dismantled, no. They lumped along. It depended on where you were, how much of an education you could get in school. So, for instance, if you look at the city of New Orleans, they create essentially two systems, a black system and a white system of public schooling in New Orleans. Um, and that persisted over time. And like all the way up into the 20th century, you have unequal education because you don't you fund one and you don't fund the other one, but it exists, right? It's there. There are quote unquote Negro schools, but they are not funded. They are not supported. And the children don't get the resources that, they, that the white children get. And that's very clear. Historians have done that kind of research, and it's very, very clear that local Southern government officials are not, you know, are clearly not spending the same amount of money. There's actually a very effective, incredibly effective exhibit um, in Jackson, Mississippi at the Civil Rights Museum there, where you sit inside a replica of a classroom, and it's sort of divided between two sides of the room, and they, this... You can't, you can't see someone writing on the board, it's, but it's as if someone is writing on the chalkboard and they give you all the statistics about how much money was being spent per black child and per white child in the segregated South. And it's really appalling and effective uh, to do it that way. I wonder, honestly, like if we were to compare it to today, if much has changed. <laughs> well, you know, New Orleans, again, is instructive because we were the first, I believe we were the first city to go all charter. And so we no longer have regular public schools. All of our schools are charter schools. And charter schools, as you, your listeners probably know, don't have the same level of accountability and oversight that traditional public schools have. We do have a school board, but charter schools can in many cases, you know, sort of determine who they accept and what they teach and how they teach it. 
And this was a result of post-Katrina environment where we had a failing school system before Katrina that was not serving particularly any of the, the public system was not serving uh, most students well, but most of the students in the public system were black, right? So there's no one would argue that it was working well before Katrina and now is a mess, <laughs> but it's just a different mess now. <laughs> and it's created a lot of issues and a lot of problems with residents of the city not feeling like they're like we had an opportunity to really remake a school system from the ground up after Katrina. And instead, many have argued that we've just created an, another way of segregating students through this charter system. And so that the best schools are not open to the poorest students and there are barriers to entry, things like that, that are kind of appalling. And so it, it's become, and I'll say the other thing I'll say about that is that New Orleans had a very, you know, although it was it was underfunded and it was in many ways failing students, it had a long history as a public school system. And people here, when you meet a new person that's from New Orleans, the first thing you ask them is, where did you go to high school? <laughs> that's how people, like once you tell somebody where you went to high school, then they immediately know what neighborhood you lived in and who you knew, et cetera, et cetera. You can't say that anymore because we don't even really have community schools anymore, right? Students, these charter schools, they end up going all over town to go to school, not in their own neighborhoods like they used to. And the names of the schools got changed without community input, which was very upsetting for a lot of people. So it was almost like people feel like they didn't have a lot of say. The community did not have a lot of say in how that school system got rebuilt. And, and I think the, the problems we're seeing now are a result of that. But people have argued at the national level that charter schools don't serve students the way they should. They're not accountable the way a public system should be accountable. Charter schools don't have the same obligation to keep a student if they're not up to par. So they can manipulate their statistics as to seem like their methods are working, but they may have pushed five students out that public schools can't do. That's right. Also, students with special needs are not well served. It is very hard for parents with students with special needs to get the kind of services they need for their students. And the charter schools have the ability to push those students elsewhere as well. Absolutely. Was there terrorism or any resistance from the former owners like in like creating these schools? If so what were they? Absolutely. No, it's, it's pretty terrifying to read. I was focused when I was doing my research for the book on areas around New Orleans, so, but, but there were plenty of plantation areas outside the city as well as in the city. And yeah, teachers were shot at. Planters would refuse, would say, they'd say, okay, you can have a school, but I won't give you a schoolhouse. You know, just every kind of resistance. And then people would refuse to give room and board to teachers, right? Local residents wouldn't agree to do that. And so the free people who wanted the teacher to remain would have to figure out how to help the teacher find a lodging. So there was all kinds of resistance. Schoolhouses were burned down, but, the, you know, bullet holes through windows, things like that. So it was, it was a very brave thing to do to enlist as a, a teacher of freed people after the Civil War because of that level of resistance and that people still, you know, people persisted and you know, children and adults managed to get some education because people persisted, but it was not an easy environment. Are there any firsthand accounts that the audience may want to read about to learn more about that? The memoirs and the letters and things like that that I'm thinking of what, that I mentioned earlier, 
don't include, at least the ones that I'm most familiar with, do not have that level of violence documented. Where you do see some of these accounts, it's not easy for your listeners to get, but there, there are letters were published in these 19th century periodicals. And I, the work that I did in the, in the Freedmen's Bureau records, I came across a lot of these accounts. I believe Heather Williams published a book on African-Americans' efforts to educate themselves. It begins before the Civil War and goes through the Reconstruction period, if my memory serves me. And that would surely have a lot of information in there about the resistance to schooling. It would, they, people would be able to see accounts there, for sure. So I guess I'm trying to figure out how much did the structure of society actually change with Reconstruction in New Orleans? Was it that people would work for their former planters, but now with low wages? Or was there a significant change in the structure? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what the first thing you said is certainly true. Um, people, many people remained in the areas where they had lived as enslaved people because that's where the work was. And so depending on where they were in the South, certainly in Louisiana, some of the wage systems were a little different depending on your crop, right? Whether you're sharecropping cotton or you're working in sugar, which would be more like a wage situation versus cotton where you would have a plot of land that you would tend and harvest and then get paid for what you bring in. So sharecropping is actually pretty similar to feudalism, right? <laughs> um, yes, I suppose it is. It is. And the reason why it's similar, the, the main reason why, is that we sort of trap people in a cycle of indebtedness to the landowner because people could never quite get out of debt because they wouldn't be paid enough for their crop. They would be charged through the plantation store for all of their tools and supplies and food and everything. It was a way of keeping people away from cash and ultimately keeping people away from um, financial independence through sharecropping. With the wage system, which existed in places and some places in Louisiana, did work a little bit differently where you did work for a wage, but you were still you know, charged a lot of money for your supplies and things like that if you lived near the plantation. And so that was also difficult. But, you know, the, one of the stories that needs to be told, I think, in greater detail are, and there is a, there is a digital site for Texas. Um, it's a study of free towns that were established by formerly enslaved communities, sort of communally established towns um, in Texas after the Civil War and sort of the history of these towns. And these were, you know, this was where people would put their money together and buy property so they would have some independence from the big landowners. And you have some of these free, you have free towns all over the South, not in huge numbers, but they're there. And they're evidence of this effort by free people to sort of counteract that feudal system by buying their own land and investing their wealth you know, what, what, what money they did earn in, in property. What about the adults who were suddenly freed? Was there any kind of education training program put up for them or were they just kind of left to fend for themselves? Well, they would typically attend a night school, maybe with the same teacher who taught the children during the day. Or sometimes they would just all be in the room together trying to learn to read and write and with the children and the adults. So they did what they could, but they certainly ultimately didn't have the, um, you know, their, their time was limited as being adults. And so they, you know, but night schools, you see a lot of mention of night schools and documentation from missionary teachers and the Freedmen's Bureau 
as an effort to try to at least give adults the basics of reading and writing. One thing you mentioned, like in the very first chapter of your book, you talk about formerly slave people immigrating out of the U.S. How did that happen and like where did they go to? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It's a big question. So the group that I write about, they're sort of intertwined migrations that we're talking about. The group that I focus on it from New Orleans, that group largely were, were, was a group of free people of color who had been free for several generations, right? So they were free people of color and some of them with means, you know, they had, they owned property or they um, had businesses and they were inspired to look elsewhere with the political developments in the United States in the 1850s, particularly the Dred Scott decision, which essentially from the Supreme Court said that black people were never intended to be citizens, right? And there were a lot of other kind of, at least at the local level in New Orleans, efforts to curtail any of the sort of what some historians have called kind of quasi-freedoms of free people of color, right? So there's, they're, essentially they're reading the writing on the wall in terms of the increasing likelihood that they would not have rights as citizens, right? Even though they were free because they were of African descent. So that group starts to look to places like Mexico, which was sort of trying to recruit them. And, and they do establish a colony there in the 1850s. It does not last, because of political happenings in Mexico, it becomes very difficult to sustain. But it was, you know, a place where people were going to buy land and set up small farms. It was not a good place for people with skills. And a lot of these free people of color did have, were skilled workers. And so that, for that reason, it didn't work out so well either. Although there are still some descendants living in Mexico of the, some of those migrants who left New Orleans in the 1850s and they stayed in Mexico. It was becoming more and more clear as we move through the 1850s in the United States, black people are not necessarily going to become citizens. And so they look to places like Haiti, which also heavily recruited them. There were other strands of migration of recently freed people also going to Haiti before the Civil War. And then there were colonization efforts, which were controversial because many of them were backed by slaveholders, right, who wanted to find a way for particularly free Blacks to leave the country, right? If you're going to be free and Black, we don't want you here, was kind of the sentiment of some of those colonizationists, right? Even Abraham Lincoln considered colonization to Latin America as a possibility, as a possible solution, because the sense was that free Black people would not be welcome in the United States and would create social problems. Liberia is another place. And, and it's a very complicated story because the motivations are different from all sides. Some, you know, you can't sort of, for some people that seemed like the best option and they wanted to go to a place like Liberia or to go to Haiti and settle there rather than be persecuted in the United States. But then there certainly there were whites who backed that because for very, very racist reasons, they didn't want black, free black people in the United States. So um, that's a, it's a sort of big kind of complicated story. But the story that I tell in the book about the free people of color from New Orleans migrating is I'm able to tell that story through the writings of some free children of color who were in school in New Orleans. And they wrote letters about this migration, which is just completely fascinating. So you see these young people learning about the, the dire political situation in the United States, thinking about leaving the only home they know 
to settle somewhere else. And so you see them thinking about, you know, where are Black people welcome, right? Where, where in this sort of Caribbean or Atlantic world can we go and be, be successful and be free and not be persecuted? And so that's yet another sort of perspective that you get on that whole notion of colonization or migration. This sounds incredibly fascinating for me because these were things that just didn't occur to me until I read your book. So is there like anything else like I'm forgetting or that people should know about early reconstruction efforts like that you speak mm-hmm. about on your book that I didn't talk about? Um, well, let's see. I guess I'll go back to explaining a bit about why the book is structured the way it is. What I chose to do was to look at African-American children and their lives as a way to understand how that reconstruction was intended to happen. What were the debates about their education? What were the debates about how they would be classified racially once slavery was over, right? What were the debates about their labor, right? And who had control over their labor? Right after the Civil War, there are numerous, numerous, numerous examples of former slaveholders trying to indenture the children of their former slaves to themselves. It was a practice that was already on the books, right? This notion of indenture could be used for white children as well as black children, but it was used especially heavily as a means of sort of social control of black families before the Civil War, if they were free. And then after the Civil War, they sort of dust off those laws a little bit and would haul in a whole group full of young people into a local court and have, without the parents, and have them, those people indentured to them until they were 21 years old. Right? So they were desperately trying to hold on to a captive labor force, not a free one. So children were kind of at the center of that debate as well, right? Are they going to go to school? so that they can learn a trade or, or, or something? Or are they going to remain uneducated and therefore be perfectly satisfied to continue to work on my plantation? So black children are kind of the center of all of those different kind of debates about the reconstruction of the country after the Civil War. And so that's why I sort of focus the Raising Freedom's Child. <laughs> I focus on all those, I take all those different lenses. Was there any notion of child support? Because I'm wondering, because I'm sure a lot of those black children probably had somebody from the white plantation owner's family as their fathers. Like, was there any kind of effort to get some kind of benefit from it? Like maybe a child support, like something? No, no, nothing formal like that at, at this stage in the middle of the 19th century. No, there was certainly, you know, on an individual level, family relationships were complicated. But no, I mean, the thing that you see Black women especially doing in the records of the Freedmen's Bureau is that they do finally have some means to demand help and support for raising children. And this would include demanding that, you know, the Black fathers of their children also do their part, right? There's finally a court that would sort of hear family disputes and help come up with a solution. There are also discussions about who, which child would live with which parent, again, amongst freed people. There is less evidence of black women being able to sort of go in and make a claim about paternity on the part of white fathers needing to support 
black children. But there is in that space where people could go before the Freedmen's Bureau, you see a lot of family disputes working themselves out in those pages, just as they would at any time, right? But before that point, there was no recourse and there was no space for petition, particularly on the part of enslaved women. And so with the arrival of the Bureau, it sort of opens up that, um, it gives them a little bit of power, a little bit of leverage that they didn't have before to get help. Since we're almost out of time, do you quickly want to talk about, I guess you, you had a database of adverts. Um, <laughs> is there any other project you're working on that is interesting that you want to talk about? Well, actually, I was interested that you wanted to talk about the photographs again, because I've been asked to speak about those for years now, off and on. And I have now become very interested in sort of the public history of those images themselves. Whenever I talk about those photographs, people always say, what happened to the children? And I always get that question. And so finally, I've started working with a genealogist and we're putting together sort of the, what we can of the biographical details of some of the children in those photographs. But I'm also interested in thinking about not just what happened to the children um, and most the, the lightest skinned children, as far as we can tell, passed, but also what, what happens to the photographs because people didn't really know much about them for a while, but they're all over the internet <laughs> um, and they even appear sort of on sort of white nationalist pages on the web. And so what I'm doing now is trying to sort of explore the sort of public history of these images themselves and what they say, not just about 19th century audiences, but also about our contemporary fascination with them. Well, for me, I wonder, like, what would it, like, with all our Instagramming and Facebook photos, like, what would a historian like you, 100 years from now, look back and see? It's a terribly thorny question that fortunately I don't have to answer because I'm not an archivist, but I know that they have been struggling with that question for a really long time. But what we can do (laughs) now, I mean, historians, I think, particularly those of us who do public history, is really pay attention. Because of the internet, we have this view into how the public thinks about history and about the past and the things that they're interested in, right? People have their own blogs and their own pages and their own conversations online for the rest of us to see. And so I think it behooves public historians to take that stuff seriously, at least to study it and sort of (laughs) try to figure out what's going on rather than just assume that it's just sort of this impenetrable mass of discussion that, you know, kind of unmoored from historical fact. I think it's, I'm finding this exercise of sort of trying to trace these photographs through time to be very instructive as a public historian. Well, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. And I hope you can come again when you're farther along on that project to continue to talk about it. (laughs) Okay, great. Have a great rest of the afternoon. You too. Take care. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.